Welcome to Street Talk, S&P Global Market Intelligence podcast that offers listeners a deep dive into issues facing financial institutions and the investment community. I'm Nathan Soval, and today we're talking about bank stocks. After a strong run leading up to 2018, bank stocks have essentially treaded water this year, even though we've had long-awaited interest rate increases and regulatory reforms come to pass. As we kick off second quarter earnings season, we thought it begged the question, where do we find value in the group at this point in the cycle? Thankfully, we have a great bank stock observer joining us today, Joe Finnick, head of Hovde Group's Equity Research Department. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for having me. You know, Joe, I wanted to just sort of start off at a high level, like how, how do we think about valuations right now sort of broadly across the group? I mean, obviously it changes from, from name to name, but, you know, do we think it's fairly valued? Do we think it's expensive? Do we think it's cheap? Hey, uh, not to dodge the question, I think we're, valuations are pretty reasonable, Nathan, here. Um, you know, if you look at sort of the longer-term trend lines, um, you know, on a tangible book value basis, we're sort of just above the longer-term trend line. And I'd say the same on a PE basis. What I think is maybe underappreciated from a longer-term perspective is since the crisis, there's kind of been these valuation hurdles, if you will, that we have to get over, right? Like the memories from the crisis are long. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, right now in particular, I don't think people have fully appreciated um, the boost that we got from tax reform. What that does is it gets us back to a pre-recession level of profitability uh, for the first time since the crisis. So if you look at it, margins and efficiency are still below the longer-term average, but tax rates are much lower. And all of that finally balances us out to a pre-recession level of profitability. Um, so if you think about that in the context of a healthy economy, you know, no real credit distress on the immediate horizon, I don't see a reason why over time the group doesn't push uh, in this environment you know, towards the you know, a little bit higher towards the upper end of the historical valuation range. Uh, there are some impediments in the near term before we get there, but I think over time uh, it would seem to me that that's where we're headed. And, and when you talk profitability, I mean, just even simple factors like ROE, right? I mean, we, we said they couldn't earn their cost of capital, a lot of these guys, and now they are, clearly. Yeah, and I always thought there was kind of a um, – that argument was um, – you know, it didn't hold much water in an environment of, of extremely low interest rates. Mm-hmm. Right? When you say banks can't earn their cost of capital, the argument was, well, then they shouldn't trade a tangible book value. Well, you know, in an environment where, you know, rates are, are basically zero, I didn't see why philosophically people would feel the need to normalize the risk-free rate, right, <laughs> which is a big driver of that cost of capital, that, you know, uh, analysis. Um, so in a low interest rate environment, I would argue that, you know, that cost of capital um, was somewhat lower, and you kind of had to adjust for that with a low-rate environment. So we never really kind of bought into that argument in the first place. Um, but, yeah, to your, to your original point, yes, on an ROE basis, I'm not sure people are fully appreciating the fact that capital return is going to pick up for the group. Um, you know, banks aren't going to be required to hold quite as much capital, so ROEs are naturally going to benefit from that, not to mention what I talked about earlier, the immediate boost from um, uh, from tax reform. So you're getting back to levels of, you know, 
you know, your average bank is going to probably produce a 12, 13% ROE. Your better banks are going to be 15 to 18%. And that over time should augur for uh, better multiples on book value. Right, right. The denominator on that E goes down. So even with, you know, if earnings don't even move much, we simply get better, better returns. Do you, and if you believe, and if you believe in that correlation between how stocks trade on tangible book value, uh, relative to the return on capital, which to me makes a lot of sense, then, you know, if return on equity is going up, multiples on tangible book value should go up as well. Right, right. No, no, absolutely. Do, do you think that means that, you know, you, you could just buy the group broadly? I mean, I know that, that that's, that's not what you do. You know, you look for the, for the greatest value, the best names out there and, and rate them. But I mean, just where we sort of are with that dynamic, is it a rising tide simply lifts all boats or, or do you need to still be a little selective? I think we're at the inflection point where the rising tide does not lift all boats. This has been something that's frustrated generalist investors that I speak to, where they call and say, hey, you know, I thought rising rates were good for, for banks. Why isn't this group moving? And it's to me, it's good for a, a select group of banks. What we call the haves and the have-nots are going to continue to struggle in this environment. I think to this point in the cycle, um, you know, correlations in terms of how the group trades have been very tight. Um, with the Fed stepping back, we all know kind of the issues around that. We'll get into that. But between that and sort of the, the disparate fundamental performance that we see on the horizon, we think, you know, it's not, you know, whereas in 2009 it was sort of a buy-the-group type of strategy that made sense and the stocks were kind of all trade up and down together. Uh, we think there's going to be uh, increased bifurcation in how these stocks trade. You're going to have a group of haves and you're going to have a group of have-nots. We can get into, you know, which, you know, why, which, what, what comprises those two groups. But I think the end result is that this is not a throw a dart, uh, type of environment and whatever, you know, bank stock the dart lands on is going to perform well. Um, I think you're going to have a group of haves and have nots and the stock, how the stocks trade are going to reflect that. You know, we've, we've made the case that a big driver of that will simply be deposit franchises. Uh, those with the really truly relationship-driven deposit franchises will be the haves, and, and then the rate-driven ones will be the have-nots. Do you, do you think that that's a big piece piece of this? I think it's the main piece of this. So in a, in a credit-distressed environment, right, the haves and the have-nots are obviously going to be who do you trust, who can you sleep well at night with from a credit standpoint. And that's what we kind of, that was the haves and the have-nots of the 2008 cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the haves and the have-nots of this cycle, and I think we're at the inflection point of that right now, like this quarter. And you kind of got a glimpse of that with Ozark's results yesterday in terms of what happened with their deposit costs. Um, but it's going to be determined largely by the quality um, and stability of that loan cost uh, of, the, of the deposit franchise. Yeah, with Ozarks, I mean, I think we, I would have to double check, but I think the beta in Q2 was something like 84%. So, you know, they passed on pretty much all the change in Fed funds. Uh, and, and they're, they're not the, your average bank. You and I have talked about them over the years, but still, I mean, they're, they're bigger. They've, they've got a lot, some traditional funding, a lot of traditional funding out there. Do you think the market has sort of appreciated that, that you could see big swings like that? That, that you could see some guys sort of gap out, so to speak? Yeah, it's funny. So it's almost – it's interesting. Like, I don't think to this point the stocks have really traded in accordance with sort of the haves and the have-nots on this funding question. 
And now it's almost like, to your point, Ozarks was sort of a, not a great example to kind of lead off because they're such a unique animal mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of. So now I think yesterday the group may have overcompensated a bit, um, thinking that what happened to Ozarks on the funding side is going to happen to everybody. I don't think that it's going to be that severe. But I do think that at least it brought the issue into focus. Um, but, yeah, I think I think that it was a little bit of an overreaction and if people are extrapolating that what happened to Ozarks is going to happen, the magnitude of that is going to happen to everyone. But I think the larger point is is intact, which is that this is the quarter where you're going to start to see that bifurcation. Right, right. And you'll see you'll see some other guys like you know I put up a number maybe like what uh, OZRK did, but then you've got guys somebody like who I know you follow. We've talked about before, like a Capital City whose funding base is, is the stickiest, sleepiest thing out there, um, who I, I, I don't know what your, you know, your specific thoughts of what happened there, but I, I just think of them as, as somebody where we might not see much change at all, and then you start to see that divide grow. Yeah, and they're a perfect example, Nathan, of why this issue heading into this quarter was underappreciated because, you know, I get calls on Capital City, and we are recommending the stock, and I understand the stock doesn't look all that cheap, on, on earnings, right? It's still trading at an elevated multiple, but it has just about the best deposit franchise in the country. And so as I'm looking at some of these banks where maybe where almost assuredly estimates are too high because of this funding slash margin issue and maybe what the implications are for loan growth, I look at the capital city and I, and I say, you know, I'm rock solid, uh, in terms of my confidence on their estimates. And in fact, I think their estimates in this environment probably trend higher over time. So maybe you're paying a little bit of a higher multiple, but the confidence you can have in the E because of this funding issue, I think, you know, sort of elevates those guys up the list. It's almost like if things start to spiral out of control on this funding question and margins really take a tumble, that's a bank, you know, or even you're paying, paying up a little more for from an earnings standpoint that you can be very confident that they're going to meet or exceed uh, the numbers that are out there. Like the credit example you gave earlier, there, there you can go to sleep at night and not worried about that that funding base. Exactly. It, exactly. Is there anybody you know, maybe not anybody else exactly like them, but who else you know, who else do you put in that camp of in your coverage group of the really strong deposit franchises? You know, so a few that would come to mind: an FCCO in South Carolina. Um, so I love the combination of great markets. Right, they're in. They have the, the the base in the Midlands, right, in the central part of South Carolina, which is slower growth, but that's where they generate that that great deposit base from. I think they have like a 22, 23 basis point cost of deposits. Um, and then they lend into the Greenville market and the Augusta market, which are faster growing. So couple that with the fact that the franchise value, the scarcity value of the franchise, there are only five banks left in South Carolina with over a billion dollars in assets. Um and the loan growth is picking up, so you have the benefit of a of a of a more robust economy. You have room to lend with a loan to deposit ratio that allows for that, and you have that rock solid core deposit base. That's the profile of a company that's going to thrive in this sort of environment. Um, it just checks all the boxes, and again, you're paying up a little more for it. Um, but you know, th- this is the company, the type of company that's going to fulfill that promise of higher rates. Uh, on the larger side. You know, I think uh, a community bank system in upstate New York, CBU, which we kind of scooped up at, and, you know, kind of hit a low point for the past 12 months around the March time timeframe. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's 
the stock price has picked up since then. But in terms of a company that's going to thrive in this type of environment, they have a misunderstood balance sheet, I think. But if you look at the deposit franchise with a nine, ten basis point uh, cost of deposits, again, just about you know one of the best in the country. People kind of look at that with the big securities portfolio and say, well, how does a company like that do well in a rising rate environment? And I'll come back to that is number one on the funding side, you can kind of trust that they're going to be able to lag considerably there. And then I think sometimes people make the mistake on the asset side of just looking at the mark-to-market portion of the balance sheet, meaning the securities portfolio and the long duration they have, instead of looking at, say, you know, looking at the balance sheet more holistically and saying, well, they've got a big auto book that's kind of got a short duration in the loan portfolio and other assets that sort of balance out that long-duration securities portfolio. I think a company, and I'll go along with that, a 70% loan-to-deposit ratio and a stock currency where they can, you know, make virtually any deal work that they want to make work within reason, um, I think they have a balance sheet that's ideally positioned for this environment. Keeps them, keeps them nimble. And, and the fact that they can do deals, you know, they can, they can switch it up too. And, it's very, and like I said, it's very misunderstood because mm-hmm. of that long duration securities portfolio. They would actually screen to some as though they're not well positioned for this interest rate environment. And I think people are just focusing on the wrong metric there. Yeah, I, I want to switch on on M and A a little bit as you as you bring it up with them. You know, we're seeing deposits become a bigger deal uh, um, with a lot of buyers. We're seeing valuations come up as we've seen you know multiples kind of come up, but we haven't seen I, I call sort of broad support. Not that there's always broad support for deals, but but you've seen some panned uh, where valuations were high, and then you've seen some where you know it looked like. You know, the earn back, the tangible book value dilution seemed within the the streets range and the earnings accretion was there, but you didn't get a lot of buyer investor support. Uh, you know, how, how do you think about M&A? Do we need to be more wary about it at this point in the cycle? It's interesting, and I can't say that we've completely figured this out. I do think we've kind of hit on something and some of the work we've done where I think you're right. It should at least give people pause. And look, the deals were 170, 180 a tangible book is buying 260, 270. That's obviously not going to work and the stock's not going to do well in the market and it's probably going to lag the group for a considerable period of time. That's an easy call, right? Mm-hmm. I think everyone's mm-hmm. kind of on the same page with that. But I think you're right. The interesting question comes, you know, what happens when the three times tangible book guy pays 260 or 250 a tangible book? There's a three year earn back. There's decent earnings accretion. Those stocks, we, we took a look at um, all deals basically since 2010. When banks pay over a certain threshold or tangible book value, no matter if the deal technically, quote unquote, works on paper or not, the stocks still tend to outperform. Uh, so, I'm sorry, still tend to underperform. And they underperform for a lengthy period of time. So specifically, all banks that have paid over 2.3 times tangible books, just to put a precise number on it, um, you know, for any deal, no matter where they trade themselves, those stocks have underperformed by more than 10% of the KR, you know, relative to the KRE for a year after the deal was announced. So, you know, does that mean we swear off investing in acquirers? No. If I see an acquirer that's done a deal that I think works on paper and that stock's trading at 10, 11 times earnings, as some of these high performers are right now, I'm going to take my chances with that. But I do think, you know, deals on the margin 
if, if you're not sure if something's a good deal or not, uh, because of what I just said about what the data is telling us, I think you've got to be on the sidelines on that deal. I also think even if you like the deal, chances are with how the market's treating these things, you know, there's no rush to jump in. Even if the stock gets hit 3 4 5% on announcement, I don't see the need to rush in and scoop it up because chances are the market's going to take its time to digest these transactions. So I can't tell you why the market's doing what it's doing in terms of, you know, just treading gingerly with these high tangible multiple deals. Um, but I do think it's worth – I don't think you want to be sitting as a portfolio manager with a whole basket of acquirers where the stock hasn't responded, I guess is my point. I think you could take your chances on a couple of these, but I think, you know, an increased level of caution is probably uh, probably uh, um, necessary here. Right, right. And it sounds like, I mean, my, my, you know, when I hear that, I think that means that the, the market has become very – price sensitive or, or sticker shock almost, whether it makes sense or not. And I think you're saying it doesn't matter if it makes sense, it's happening. So, so you need to have your, your eyes open. Uh, and yeah, like it, I said, I don't think you, you discard though, the, the acquires just because of how the market's treating it. Cause like I said earlier, we could just be, the market could just be having a tough time getting over this next valuation hurdle, mm-hmm. meaning seeing deals at these multiples. So maybe as, the market becomes more adjusted to that, um, maybe these things all work out in the end. The deals that work out on paper that we think should be working out in the market, but I think you just got to be careful right now because to this point, that's not what's happened. Right, right. Yeah, and it might be as simple as, oh, we haven't seen one of these since 06, 07. I remember what that was, and six months passes, and we don't have that credit problem. You know, we don't have just complete empire building like we saw then. And so perhaps, you know, the investment community comes around to it. I, you know, I kind of, but not, not, well, real quick, not to talk kind of both sides of my mouth, but the reason why you need to be cautious is, look, it's entirely viable that I don't think we're headed for 2008, but, you know, this could be very late cycle, right? And mm-hmm. so paying those type of multiples ahead of a period of potential credit distress a year or two out could be the reason why the market's taking a more skeptical view too. So like I said, I don't have the answer. It could be either one of those extremes. Um, but I think you've got to be cognizant of it is all we're saying. Sure, sure. Well, I, I kind of I kind of want to sort of close here with another sort of high-level basic question on, you know, what do you see as sort of the catalyst either for the group or for potential names? And it, it might be back where we started with the idea that greater appreciation that ROEs are, are, are higher and greater appreciation that deposits are worth something again and in a big way. I mean, is it is it that simple? I think it is. I think it's also confidence in 2019E, mm-hmm. right? So for the have-nots, this isn't to say you can't buy the have-nots, right? You just got to have, A, confidence in forward estimates, and you really got to shock forward numbers if we are in this new kind of uh, environment for accelerated funding costs, right? Uh, I think you've got to shock numbers to make sure you're rock solid in sort of that out-year EPS as solid as you can be, as confident as you can be in that. And then look, and then it's time to go bargain shopping, I think, right? If mm-hmm. Once you get confidence in that E, that's for the have-nots. For the haves, I think you're in a pretty good environment. You know, I think, you know, everyone's going to get painted with a, it might be choppy trading in the near term, and you saw what happened yesterday. Even the haves got whacked off the Ozark news and the sell-off in the group. Um, but to me, those are buying opportunities right now. 
Uh, whereas for the have-nots, I kind of want to see things settle out a bit. I don't think there's going to be a rush uh, into these stocks anytime soon. But in areas like the Northeast, you know, if if we see results like we saw at Ozarks from some of these banks in the Northeast and the whole group gets whacked, you know, there are some opportunities, I think, in the Northeast where you can start to go bargain shopping. But I kind of want to see second quarter earnings play out. Uh, but I think ahead of second quarter earnings for the HABs on days like yesterday, um, you could be buying those stocks right now. Well, great thoughts, great insight. Thanks for taking the time, Joe. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me again, Nathan. Good to talk to you.